You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Markets up again with Dow at a record. U.S. economists send GDP forecasts up to 5.4% and another poor U.S. Treasury auction. All that and more coming right up with Peter Bookvar and Jim Bianco. Peter Bookvar and Jim Bianco, welcome back to the Daily Briefing. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, so I mean, this is actually the first time that we've done a three-person uh, daily briefing with two people who are not from Real Vision. Uh, you guys are the last two people I've had on on Thursdays, alternating Thursdays. And actually, I think it was the one, Jim, that I was talking to you. You were like, hold on, uh, I'm talking to Peter Bookvar on the on the line. we got to delay this. And I was like, if you're going to talk to Peter Bookvar, you got to do it right here on Real Vision. So that's why I have you guys together. Um, so what's uh, going on in the markets right now? As far as the markets go, it looks like that they've bottomed in the last couple of days and they're turning around. And the thing that's kind of taken the, um, the markets off the boil is 160 10-year notes has held Looks like a double top from last week to earlier this week. We haven't come back a lot. We're roughly at 152, 153, but it's enough to at least get the market to exhale. And now we've got a counter trend going where we're back to tech and growth seeming to lead the way, at least the last few days. Um, you know, value hasn't declined, but it's definitely back in the, you know, in the back seat now where growth is in the front seat. Yeah, you know, uh, let me. Uh, I'll go to you on this for a second, Peter. But that sounds good to me because I've been looking at the uh, the rates almost as leading uh, the the rotation that we've been seeing, and we did get up to that 160 level, backed off. I'm looking for consolidation above 150 by the end of tomorrow uh, to confirm that we're out of that range from one, you know, one percent to 150. That we're in this new range and that potentially we can move higher on 10 years. You were actually looking at the 30-year auction today. Uh, how are you looking at rates and what did you see in the 30-year? Well, I actually agree with you that 150 is now going to be a floor. And could we trade slightly below it? Yes, maybe. Uh, but I think that that's going to be a new floor. I agree that rates are probably topped in the short term and they're going to stabilize around these levels, but it would just be a, a brief respite before I think we'll see another like higher. Uh, the 10-year auction yesterday was pretty mediocre. The 30-year today was very mediocre. Uh, the three-year on, on Tuesday was very good. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the markets are coming in every day saying, should we worry about higher rates or should we celebrate an improving economy and the vaccine? And I, I think that this is we're going to be in this sort of bipolar world for a period of time. Now, at some point, if rates continue higher, then people will quickly forget about the vaccine and 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 the the improving economy because the rise in rates will then start to impact that growth story. But at least for now, you had the the, the peak in middle of February. You had the shock of the rate move. You had the pullback. And now this is a retest. So this retest 
is is really notable uh, because it's in the context of what I think is a regime change in interest rates. So any failure here at that this retest, I think, will be more notable than those that we've seen in the past. You know, can I? Yeah, throw interesting. In? Yeah, we, uh, I was looking at your chart of uh, that you had in when you were looking at the thirty year today that you sent out, and uh, going back to two thousand and fourteen. And it's just like, you know, from 2019 forward, it just rates just went straight down. But now they're coming straight back up. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, normalizing in a sense, it does seem like, uh, you know, there's a lot of room to run on the upside. Well, inflation expectations have normalized. Uh, because the 30-year implied break-even is at the highest level since 2014, as is uh, the 10-year. And the five-year break-even is the highest since July 2008, when crude oil was approaching $150 a barrel versus 65 today. Uh, from, so that's on the, on the break-evens. From a nominal standpoint, yes, there's further room to rise here for sure. Just a question of, of, of how much the Fed can, can sort of contain that via uh, keeping the Fed funds rate at zero and doing their QE on the short end and sort of verbally threatening uh, changing QE, or I don't think they're going to do YCC for a while, but um, we'll see to what extent. But break-even certainly have, have blown out here. Can I add to that real quick? If you look at the way that this growth value rotation has been trading, you see a very interesting pattern that it might just be all about rates. The biggest part of the growth sector is technology. The biggest part of value is financials. Higher rates helps financials. It hurts long-duration, richly-valued technology. So in the space of higher rates, you've had this tech financial rotation that everybody's been calling a rotation of growth to value. Take those sectors out and look at the rest of growth value without them. Very unclear whether or not we're actually having a growth value ro rotation. So if you look at, say, the reopening stocks versus the disruptive st stocks, the Zooms and the DocuSigns of the world versus the cruise ships and the airlines, that ratio of those bottomed just a couple of weeks ago, while the reopening stocks have outperformed, it's only been slight, and it could be all given back in a very short period of time. So this growth value relationship that everybody's talking about might just be a function of interest rates. That's how we're so mesmerized by what's happening with rates right now that it seems to be an explainer of pretty much a lot of what's going on in the equity market. What's interesting with the reopening, and, and I've been somewhat positive on the reopening since the middle of last year, but now you're at a point where, take Marriott's, Marriott, for example, its stock is above where it was in February. And looking out over the next 12 months, you can't, I don't think you can argue with a straight face that business travel over the next 12 months is going to be what people thought it would be in February 2020 before everything hit the fan. You have Live Nation, which I do believe that people are going to be raging to go back to concerts, but that's really going to be more of a 2022 event. And that stock is, is, is above where it was in, in February 2020. And to add to what Jim is saying, I would also throw the commodity space into that Percept, you know, that value bucket uh, or what, you know, energy and financials, and you know, to add that to, because we, we've had over the past year plus, the we've had two markets, tech and everything else, and then uh, what we saw in this pullback is sell tech, buy everything else, and now we get to see now that 
sort of everything is rallying back now, you know, what happens from here? You know, uh, tell me then what you think of this, because uh, I think it's interesting, given that you mentioned commodities, uh, of which energy is a portion, and financials, both of you guys, because I've, I'm looking at the alerts that I've gotten on uh, stock that hit a 52-week high or ETFs that have hit a 52-week high. And here's what I've got. Uh, over This is just today. Uh, tons of 52 weeks highs, the most that I've ever seen actually today in the past few weeks. BNO, which is the Brent uh, ETF, 52 week high. We've got, uh, you know, um, Bank of America, 52 week high. Fifth Third Citigroup was a 52 week high. Goldman Sachs, Visa, uh, the iShares US Energy um, uh, ETF hit a 52 week high. Boeing and Toll Brothers. Uh, and gasoline. Th those are the things that I saw that are on my watch list. Only, you know, like Boeing, I guess we call that a reopening play and Toll Brothers. I mean, what do you make of that in terms of that? Those are the those are the, the things that are, are really catching fire. Can I just jump in and say that a lot of those names that you mentioned, if you look, they're not at all time highs. They're at 52 week highs, but they have not completely recovered the whole way. Whereas a lot of the growth names that I have corrected in the last few weeks, which are not on your list, are way above their pandemic peaks that we've seen. I think a lot of what you're seeing in those sectors, especially in the financial sector, is that it's more or less an oversold bounce. Look, in the financial sector, the KBW Bank Stock Index actually still holds its high as 2007 right now, came very close to it a couple of weeks ago. So it's still 15 years since it's made an all-time high. So I think you're just seeing an oversold bounce. And again, I think what's driving a lot of that is this idea of higher rates being driven by either reflation uh, or real growth or inflation is what you've got. But they're still at very depressed levels if you look at them from a bigger picture. So when you guys are, are chatting uh, together uh, and you're disagreeing with one another, what are you guys talking about? I don't know the last time Jim and I disagreed, so I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but what about inflation? Talk to me about inflation in this context. Uh, you know, because I think that, Jim, you were telling me uh, you're not looking for gangbusters inflation. You're just looking for the highest level inflation that we've had for a, a certain period of time. And that's something like 2.6 percent. Yeah, just to put that in, uh, you know, I am an inflationista. I have been looking for inflation since last summer. So this is a fairly new idea for me in terms of the broader picture of looking for inflation. And I think it's coming about because of all of the stimulus that we've had. We're going to see a spurt of inflation more than just the base effects that we should get in the next few months. Uh, and part of the reason I think we're going to get it is think of what uh, President Biden announced that he's going to do tonight. He's going to give a nationally televised speech, his first one. And the topic is what's next. So he signed this afternoon the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, and he's going on national television to tell you they ain't done. There's more coming. There's an infrastructure bill coming, and they're not even done with the infrastructure bill. There's probably more even after that. I think all that stimulus will lead to 2.6% core inflation. Wow, 2.6, as I've said, people don't even think that that's a a big number, that that's not even the definition of inflation. It's a 28-year high. But if you get that, maintain that beyond the base effects, 
And then the bond market comes into the realization that we've got a higher level of inflation and moves to positive real yields, you'd be looking at a 3% 10-year note. And in this levered environment that we have right now, a 3% 10-year note, if you calculate the total return losses, can be very painful in the bond market as we readjust to that level of higher rates. I know most people like to think about it as, well, if my mortgage goes up one more percent, what difference does it make? You're not a levered bond trader. And that kind of move will really hurt. And as I like to say, if the bond market has a problem, everybody has a problem. And to be clear, it doesn't have a problem now, but it might if we start seeing rates move up a lot. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, just remember what a two and a half Fed funds rate did in the fourth quarter of 2018. The markets had a, a massive hissy fit. And it also had a two and a half percent Fed funds rate. Yeah, and it also I, I, I agree with you guys. Let me give you a different perspective, though. Uh, I was just talking to Larry McDonald. He says hi to you guys. Uh, he's really looking forward to this. Uh, he was telling me. I was asking him what because uh, I'm talking to him on Monday. Uh, what do you expect? What do you think about what Biden's doing tonight? Okay, wh when we speak on Monday, what are you going to be saying about it? And he said, "Look, you know, we just had a bill that was passed through reconciliation." And the reason is, is because you can't get the 60 votes. You got to do reconciliation in order to get the bill passed. So you get the 50 plus one with Kamala Harris. No bill can be done via reconciliation until Q4. So this bill has zero chance of passing unless they work some serious magic uh, before re uh, before reconciliation in Q4, which is you know the the Q1 of uh, fiscal year 2022, so it could be we're done you know in terms of stimulus for uh, the foreseeable future at least until the back half of the year. How do, if that's actually the case, what do you think of that? I think that that you know you're talking about now the infrastructure bill, and I think that we've already baked in enough stimulus that 21 and into early 22, we're going to, to put it in an economics term, we're going to fill the output gap. There's roughly a six, $700 billion output gap, meaning that the potential of the economy and where we're actually at, the potential of the economy is about six, $700 billion higher than we are. But we're going to pump $1.9 of stimulus into it. And so we should fill the output gap. We should have that inflation spurt. So if it takes to the fourth quarter, as long as you continue to add to that stimulus in the 22, I think you continue to push the inflation narrative and you keep pushing the inflation numbers forward. And like I said, the biggest thing is you don't need big inflation. You just need two and a half ish inflation. And then a realization in the bond market, this is here to stay in positive real yields. And you wind up with a big move in interest rates. Uh, you know, so you don't need to kind of spin a Zimbabwe kind of story as far as where inflation is going to go. Far from it. You don't, you, you don't need a whole lot more in order for, for interest rates to really start zooming. And look at what 151.60 did to the equity market in the last couple of weeks. If we continue to see new highs and new highs and new highs as we move forward, the indigestion will only grow. Yeah, And this $1.9 is only three months after spending $900 billion. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, I must say. And, you know, uh, Peter, what about the international sector? I mean, there are two vectors here. One is, is if what Jim's saying is true and it makes a lot of sense, then obviously that has a, a, a impact on the dollar. You know, real rates that are positive has an impact. The second question I have for you on that is, what about inflation elsewhere? Because it does seem like the U.S. is vaccinating more quickly, getting out of the recession more quickly, at least than uh, Europe as an example. Well, looking at the rest of the world in terms of inflation, where food prices go would have the, the most direct impact. Uh, because outside of the U.S., well, obviously low-income people here in the U.S. Are, are highly sensitive to changes in food prices since uh, their budget is like 10 percent uh, that's allocated to food. But overseas, when there, there's not as much uh, income on a per capita basis, particularly in emerging markets, higher food prices has a, a pronounced effect. But overall, if it influences, obviously, the cost of living in addition to uh, the direction of interest rates, then this is definitely a, a, a global event uh, that potentially can unwind. That, as Jim said, is where bonds go and where rates go here. Uh, is going to have a, a profound impact here. It's going to have also the same elsewhere. And we'll just see to what extent do the central bankers fight back uh, against that rise in rates. And, and what about the dollar there? I mean, in terms of, and not just uh, what impact does it have in general on inflation, but also on the economies and the and asset allocation. When you think of, hey, do, am I going to outperform if I have EM? Am I going to outperform if I have Europe? Uh, what do you say about the dollar given inflation? Well, I think that the secular problem with the dollar remains the the the, the widening uh, deficits, the the trade deficit, the current account deficit, which obviously encompasses that, and also the budget deficit. You can draw thirty year charts. Uh, overlaying the big picture direction of the dollar versus these deficits relative to GDP. So as long as we keep spending this kind of money, and keep in mind, the money that we're spending is, is turning into more perpetual type obligations. So you expand the child tax credit, that doesn't go away. That is now a permanent higher level of spending. And we know that the Democrats are trying to sort of ease their way into universal basic income and so on, that we're, we're creating more structurally higher budget deficits as a percent of GDP. And over time, that is going to be very dollar negative. But, oh, what about over the short term, like into the medium term? Are you bullish or are you bearish in the dollar? Well, short term, the dollar is going to trade off, like you say, uh, our rates compared to, to others. I think it'll be a, a, an interest rate differential thing. But even with the, the sharp rise in U.S. rates relative to the rest of the world, I mean, the dollar index is bounced from 90 to 92. I mean, that, that's all it's got on, on this sharp rise in U.S. rates. So that tells you a lot about uh, the major headwinds that the dollar has, is if this is the only rally that we're going to see on this rise in U.S. rates compared to the rest of the world. You know, if I could throw in there, too, if you look at uh, relative growth levels, too, the U.S., economists in the U.S. seem to be in a game of uh, I dare you. You know, we've got 5.4 percent as the average GDP growth target for 21 right now. If that's true, that'll be the highest growth level in 37 years. You got to go back to 1984 to find a higher one. And the outliers are now at 7 percent. And there's even... I heard one this morning that is toying around with maybe a 9% forecast 
for 21. That in and of itself, the U.S. is vaccinated far more people than Europe or Japan. It's got far higher growth rates uh, and higher interest rates. Peter's right. The dollar should be, in the short term, should be going straight up right now. And the best you can get is 90, 92 on the dollar index move. That's all you've got. That's a little bit worrisome because it's going to be hard from here forward to say, okay, give me another story. What do you mean? I've just given you the best set of stories I could give you to get the dollar to rally. And while it's not going down, it's certainly not really taking off right now. Yeah, you know, and you had two charts on that, uh, one which shows a massive increase in terms of uh, U.S. GDP forecasting, and then the second one where you were talking about uh, uh, the 30-some-year uh, high in terms of uh, GDP growth in the U.S. It is hard to understand why it is that uh, rates in other countries are going up at almost as much as they are in the U.S., and therefore, you know, the dollar isn't increasing more. But maybe it's we're we're looking in the wrong places. What about uh, emerging markets as opposed to the United States? I mean, isn't it places like Brazil, Turkey, as an example, which has uh, the same sort of current account deficit problem that we have? Aren't those the places to be looking for uh, instability with regard to the dollar? Yeah, I would say so. You know, if you were to look at the uh, EM currency indexes or if you look at the EM economies themselves, they're basically commodity-based economies. Commodities are really moving along. That is a big benefit for them as we go. Maybe China might be a separate story because there's a lot of politics associated with them. But looking at the rest of the EM, they should be and are continuing to perform well. And as the U.S. gets into more of a risk-taking mode because we're reopening. We expect big growth. We see big commodity prices. I think the EM will do very well. We'll have to continue to see it going forward. All that's good. What about uh, this rotation that we were talking about? I want to go back to that concept that uh, it's not value versus growth per se. But you know, when you look at the indices today, what happened? You, what you saw is the Dow was up all-time high, but the Nasdaq was up, uh, you know, much more than the Dow. So it's hard to make heads or tails out of what's happening in terms of rotation and why there's any rotation at all. What's the fundamental factors that are underlying what's happening from a, a sectoral perspective in the markets right now? I'd argue the two things. One, as we mentioned earlier, is it's definitely rates, because that seems to really be pushing on the financial sector uh, as well, too. Rates up, financials do well. Rates down, financials don't do well, because it's also uh, uh, with the yield curve as well, too. As far as technology goes, the problem that technology faces is its rich valuation. It's not the growth story uh, or the disruption story with technology that's at risk. It's that people are, are paying up big for technology. And as long as they believe that there can be even richer valuations ahead of it, it will keep going up. One of the things that upsets that richer valuation story is higher rates as we move forward from here. So the rotation, like I said, I think you can explain most of the rotation because of interest rates as opposed to the standard definition of We've got the highest growth rate expectations in 37 years for the U.S. economy. 
We're going to go gangbusters when we open. So everybody into the reopening stocks, everybody into the cyclical stocks, because they're going to boom. Well, if you take out growth and you take, I mean, if you take out technology and financials, they're not booming relative to what's left in the growth value uh, equation. And so maybe there's a bit of a skepticism in the market as far as where we're going to go from here once you start uh, adjusting for interest rates. Yeah, and to add, I mean, when you think about when the sell side has their year-end price targets, you know, their main focus is, is trying to figure out what earnings are going to be at the end of the year. And then they take the prior year's P.E. ratio and they use that and put it forward. So this year, I think going into this year, I, I was of the opinion that picking what that earnings per share number and the trajectory of the economy is going to be much easier than figuring out what the right P.E. ratio is. Because I was pretty confident that this year's P.E. ratio would be different than last year if I was right on the inflation story and if I was right on higher interest rates. So you tell me what the what what the P.E. ratio should settle out at with with the tenure at one and a half or one and three quarters or two. Then I'll tell you where the market is. But I argue that to Jim's point on on, on the growthy tech and frothy areas in the market, that it's most likely that P.E. ratio is going to be lower and that other parts of the market, maybe they have a chance because their P.E. ratio is already depressed. And that's why their so-called value. Uh, well, they have the chance to to to, to increase as they'll trade more on the trajectory of earnings, whereas the growthy part of the market will trade more on what that multiple is going to be. And day to day, there's going to be that debate on what it should be. Is there, is there a Goldilocks there, uh, scenario there uh, for rates? I mean, what would be if you could thread the needle both on growth and value? What, what kind of uh, rates uh, regime would we have? Well, the the only the only needle to thread in getting both to rally is is rates staying artificially low, because that would help the growthy parts of the market, and with the vaccine and the economy rebounding, that would help the other parts of the market. But I don't believe in that free lunch. Right, and, and uh, that that obviously leads to YCC. You know, I mean, the the conversation I was having with Larry uh, just before we got on, we were talking about this. Uh, I think you mentioned it, Peter. Uh, the concept that will the Fed's jawboning the market be enough, uh, or do they actually have to move to actually do stuff for things to happen? And you, Larry was basically saying to me that uh, they're going to first uh, try to jawbone, and if that doesn't work, then they're going to move to actually doing something. Um, and of course, that's something that everyone thinks about is yield curve control. Um, do you think that that would actually uh, be counterproductive? Because that's a conversation you and I have had before. Well, one of the things the Fed is doing is they're looking at the experience of other countries, putting aside what the what the Federal Reserve did and the Treasury did in the 40s and into in early 50s. Okay, so look at Japan. They did yield curve, and what's the result? Their regional banking system is almost dead, and the Japanese bank stock index is down 90 percent from where it was 30 years ago. So, okay, how's that experiment gone? Well, you know, you kill off your banks. You look at Australia, since they're the most recent example of yield curve control. They went the short end at 0.1%, and they said, we're going to have that rate out to three years. Well, what happened? The 10-year yield exploded in their face, up almost 100 basis points in a very short period of time. So those aren't really two good examples of any success with YCC. 
And the Fed also knows that once you get in, completely ties your hands, and it makes it really, really difficult to get out. So what's the Fed going to do? They're going to do YCC. Well, are they going to do out to three years, five years, 10 years? The further out they go, the more difficult this gets. But as seen in Australia, you go too short, and you can potentially lose control of the long end. And then what happens if inflation starts to print three, four, five percent? How is Jay Powell going to do on his, his testimony in front of Congress when you when you have Maxine Waters saying to him, "My my, my constituency has a cost of living uh, increases five to six percent, and 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 you got the the short term interest rate or the ten year yield pinned at two percent." And then what happens if there's so much pressure in the Fed, they need to take it off? Then you got a major problem in the bond market. So it is a real can of worms if you, if you dive into that YCC pool. So people throw it out on paper. It looks, it looks good. Okay, we can manage the yield curve. But in reality, it's a much different story. Ed, if I can underscore that, what Peter was saying, again, go back to Australia. You're absolutely right, Peter. They have yield curve control 10 basis points out to the three-year. And if you look at their yield curve, it is a 10 basis points lower out to the three-year. Their four-year note, they have a four-year note, is at 60 basis points, and their five-year note's near 1%. So they've got this hockey stick-shaped yield curve. His, his yield curve control worked in, in Australia. Technically, yes, because they can hold the three-year note down at 10 basis points. But conceptually, no because the rest of their yield curve is just soaring in compensation for it. And by the way, how did they get them, finally get their rates down to 10, year, 10, uh, 10 basis points on the three-year? They stopped lending their bonds to shorts just a few days ago. They stepped in and they kept buying bonds, and they couldn't get it back to their target. So they literally went to squeezing the shorts. They put a 100 basis point premium on anybody who wants to borrow bonds from the Reserve Bank of Australia in a short position. So they have effectively ended the short, and that finally brought their rates down. It's very, very difficult for them to even keep their three-year note in line. The rest of the yield curve is not behaving like you'd want to. So I agree with Peter. Everybody throws out this, oh, they'll do yield curve control, no problem. Go look at the examples we have of yield curve control, and it's very iffy if they're working. Technically, they work because you could force one rate to a certain level, but conceptually, that doesn't mean the rest of the yield curve follows suit, and you don't get the desired outcome that you want. So when you guys are supposed to be disagreeing here, you know, uh, <laughs> let, let, me get, let me give you something that you could possibly disagree on. Um, uh, how about your asset allocation? So what do you do from here? Because, I mean, I think you both lay out compelling cases for difficulty. Uh, so where, where do I run and hide to make sure that I don't get caught up in a downdraft in, in the markets and that, I, you know, I'm still getting a decent return? So, I'll, you, I'll, I'll start with, yeah, since P, Peter, you're, you're, you're chomping the bit there, let, let's go with you. Well, let, let's take the, you know, the financials. So if the risk to the equity market is a rise in rates, well, maybe, and, and financials obviously will get negatively impacted if that leads to a downturn in the economy, higher loan losses, and so on. But until you get that point, to me, I'm actually beginning to find um, Japanese bank stocks, the mega banks, not the regionals, the megas, as really interesting. I think there's an extraordinary amount of pressure on Kuroda to widen the, the yield curve control band. Now, he said last Friday that he's not doing it. 
Then you had the following uh, day on Monday, the deputy governor saying, well, we may not do it, but let's allow for some more volatility within the range. So I, I think you could get it at some point this year because of the pressure on uh, the regional banks. Uh, there's even chatter that they, they would even exempt some banks from further damage from negative interest rates. Uh, you look at European banks, which are down, I think, 75% from where they were in 2007, 2008. And while I'm less enthusiastic uh, with European banks, because at least Japanese banks have the exposure to Asia, which I think is uh, still the exciting growth story when looking out over the next 10 years, uh, a lot of these European banks are trading at 20, 30 percent of, of book value. I still remain bullish on the commodity trade, energy stock, agriculture, uranium, the precious metals. And there's still U.S. stocks that trade 10, 11 times earnings with three to four percent type dividend yields that I think are, are pretty attractive in this kind of environment. You know, last uh, question before we get to Jim. So what about uh, gold and silver in an environment in which real yields potentially could go positive? Isn't that negative for precious metals? So, yes, that, that is going to be the trade-off uh, with, with precious metals. And we've seen that, obviously, over the last couple of weeks with this upturn in real rates and uh, uptick in the dollar. But quietly today, the five-year real rate, which obviously has the in downward weight of the of the Fed funds rate is back to almost the lows again because of the 13-year high in uh, inflation expectations and the five-year tips. Uh, the 10-year break. Uh, I'm sorry. The 10-year real rate has also has also pulled back as well. So um, and the dollar not really gaining much traction past this 92 level and dipping below it. So uh, I, I still think that uh, the metals are exciting. I still think they're obviously going to be impacted by where rates go. And I know on a day like today, people will just look at the nominal rate and then the algos will 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 uh, will trade gold off that. But um, when you look at, again, the one point nine trillion after spending nine hundred billion and and whether we get infrastructure spending or not, uh, there's just this inclination to just spend, spend, spend. And what that means for deficits uh, it, 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 to me, it, it's, it's going to be very positive for gold. And you look at even the ECB today. So, so, so the ECB wants higher inflation, but then once the market starts to sniff out higher inflation, well, they don't want higher rates. So then they come out and say, yeah, we're going to front load QE to prevent uh, unwanted tightening of financial conditions, which if they were got their wish on inflation, then we would see a tightening of financial conditions. So you can't make this stuff up. But um, so they're going to do their best to suppress rates. While I think that Japan's going to widen the band, they'll still tr do their best to suppress rates, and 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 this will all be uh, positive for the pressure metal. Where where are you uh, on the asset allocation there, Jim? So I'm going to go a little different direction here, and I'm going to give you a first of all, I'm going to give you a real vision answer. Um, it's Ash Bennington's world, and we just all live in it. And I'm talking about <laughs> cryptos. I'm talking about cryptos right now. Um, I'm a big bull on the whole DeFi crypto space. I think it's going to be enormously disruptive, especially for the financial system as we move forward from here. I agree, Peter, that you know, as a trade or as a rental, I can see an outlook for the financials over the next several months or a year or so. But if you ask me my five or 10-year opinion about the financials, 
I think there's a reason that the Japanese stocks are still, the bank stocks are still under their 1987 crash lows, and that the European bank stocks are at the same levels that they were in the early 90s. The market is sniffing out that there's a big disruption coming. So with that said, I did talk about that, you know, uh, the, 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 the big cap disruptive technology stocks are going to have a problem near term if we have higher rates. And I'll give you a quick example. We all are recognize Apple as being a huge winner. There was a 20-year period from 1983 to 2003, the stock went nowhere and had six 80% corrections. We all understand that Amazon was a huge winner. It was a period in 99, Jeff Bezos was Time Magazine's man of the year because of the e-commerce revolution. The stock fell 94% in the next two years, 94% and then went from an average a price of six to 3,000 where it is today. So if you're going to invest in technology or disruption, be prepared. Be prepared to lose two-thirds of your money or 80% of your money along the way if you, and still believe in the subject. Now, I happen to think that the disruption story is one that's going to work out, especially in the financial space, because of this disruption. But I'm also going into these trades knowing you get higher rates, you get a stumble, you can have a bone-crushing type of correction in a lot of these stocks, and the story can still hold together. Look at the NASDAQ in 2000, what it did. It went from 5,500 to 1,100 uh, right after the 2000 peak, and now it's near, you know, over 10,000 uh, as well, near 13,000. So you can see these kind of bone-crushing mistakes, but longer term, if you believe the disruption story like I do, um, I, I would, I'm positioned for it, but I'm also understanding what might be in store if, a, if the negative set of circumstances come. So these are not types of trades you want to do, you know, with a standard kind of fare that you get concerned on a 10% correction like we recently had in the NASDAQ. This is going to happen quite a bit if, if you want to play that story long term. Excellent. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it on that. And Ash Bennington, that's your call out there, my friend. Uh, 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 Peter and Jim, we're going to do this again. It's good to, uh, to, to have it this way. It's a little bit more dynamic uh, talking to, to both of you at the same time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ed, for setting it up. It was a lot of fun. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.